This is episode 46 of the Untangled Faith podcast. And this is what's a little bit crazy making. Two people in the same system, one will say, well, he was a perfect gentleman. He was so kind to me. And the other would say, at every turn, he pulls on me for something more. He demeans me with a look or a word. It's really hard to say, look for this or look for that because our own experience might be, be really different. And then, you know, when I do processes, then what I'll, what I'll do is I'll say, we're gonna start looking for patterns. I'm gonna interview people. We're not just gonna look for like one-off things, right? What we're gonna be looking for are patterns. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith, while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. This episode is also sponsored by Faithful Counseling. Earlier this year, after putting it off for far too long, I started seeing a counselor, and it's made a huge difference for me. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with thousands of licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Fill out a questionnaire and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. In early 2020, before we knew the world was about to change dramatically, I signed up to be on a book launch team for a book that looked very interesting to me. The title of the book is When Narcissism Comes to Church. Ever since I discovered YouTube videos of Dr. Diane Langberg discussing narcissism, the topic has intrigued me. I highlighted most of the book the second it arrived and had lots of conversations about what I was learning. Learning about narcissism changed my life. It was one of the topics I believe God used to help us realize Nathan was a part of a narcissistic organization, and it helped us be aware of the fact that leaders and organizations sometimes do whatever they can to protect themselves, even sacrifice good people, even lie. Today, I get to introduce you to the book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Chuck DeGroat joined me for a conversation, and I was even able to ask him some of the questions you all suggested. Here's our conversation to have you on the podcast. I feel like some of my journey started with being sitting in a launch group for your mm. your book that came out like in 2020, right? Your book came out in 2020. Yep, right, right at the, the beginning of COVID. Could not have planned that, would not have planned that. But it was such a blessing to me. And I don't know what you expected would happen with that launch group but it really turned into a really encouraging group for a lot of us. I was really grateful for that. I'd never done anything like that before and um, was nervous about it. So, and it almost became a bit of a support group. Like, um, yeah, I, I mean, there are people who I still stay connected to through that just be, 
because, you know, they became aware of some stuff and, and then through that process that they hadn't been aware of before. So it was fun. We actually had a good number of people from our area and we ended up meeting up and having a lunch at, at one point before the world shut down. So your book came out early 2020 when narcissism comes to church. Yeah. The timing of that, apart from COVID, there have been so many things happening in the church at yeah. large, right before your book came out, right after your book came out. So I know the word narcissist and narcissism is thrown around a lot, but I would love if you give us a lay person's definition of what is it, what does narcissism mean when we're talking about it in the context, especially in the context of the church and yeah. how it's impacting faith communities. I wanted to ask this question because I know the term narcissist is tossed around a lot these days. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think when people hear the word narcissism, they generally tend to think of someone who is kind of grandiose and powerful and egocentric, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of the, and, and all that I think is true. Like the, the regular sort of textbook definition gets at things like grandiosity, um, entitlement, attention seeking, um, low empathy. Um, I kind of argue that narcissism has many faces because um, power can be exercised in a grandiose way. Um, we call that grandiose narcissism. But there are other ways that power can be exercised in ways that look um, maybe even a little bit more meek and mild, you know, but uh, actually tend to be more passive aggressive. Uh, but it's it, it fundamentally gets at a kind of misuse or abuse of power, a person's sort of power and persona um, that... Um, manipulates, coerces, exploits another. You might as well make a bingo card for phrases and names I often repeat on the Untangled Faith podcast. If you do, just make a square for Dr. Langberg because I'm pretty sure her name is mentioned in the first three episodes this season. So one of my favorite things to do when I'm reading an author's work is to see who they are reading, who they're citing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that that meme that you see with the guy with the gal that he's looking at the other person. And so yeah. that's me with the book looking back at like the end notes or the I footnotes. love that. I'm with you 100%. <laughs> One of the things I noticed was that you had cited Dr. Diane Langberg and her work. You had watched her her um, talk on narcissism and the system it breeds. I can't tell you the number of people that have stumbled across that and has blown their mind. So I would, I would love you to explain for people that can really understand. Yeah, yeah I can see how narcissism works in an individual, but what yeah. do you mean by is what is systemic yeah. narcissism? What does yeah. that what does that look like? Is that even yeah. a possible thing? Yeah. So okay, first of all, um, just a word about Diane. Um, I, all of us who do this work are just thinking Diane's thoughts after her, right? So, yes. um, I mean, I was listening to cassette tapes of Diane Langberg in the late 90s um, when I was a kind of young pastor and therapist. And so, uh, I and, and I've just learned a ton from her over the years. And so, uh, and it's interesting, you know, within the year, uh, like I, my book came out, Diane, she had a book that came out. Wade Mullen had a book that came out. Uh, Laura Berenger and Scott McKnight had a book. So there's obviously something in the air. You know, yes. we were all paying attention to. Yeah, that year was like an embarrassment of riches of, of resources for people. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, collective or systemic narcissism or whatever one, label you want to use for it sort of uh, operates with some of the same principles as individual narcissism. But 
but now the dynamic is um, is within a group, um, within a kind of group think, and and so um, let's just say that same grandiosity, for instance, that you see in an individual is now shared by a, a collective. It might be a church staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I give an illustration. I think the, one of the illustrations I give in there is of, of a Christian organization where there was a sense of we do evangelism and discipleship better than any other organization that does evangelism and discipleship. And we are entitled to all of your attention because we, you know, you hear the way I'm describing it. Sounds yeah. a little bit yeah. like individual narcissism, right? And so and it, it's interesting that this can be sort of um, sh- uh, shared among people who uh, have a kind of common sensibility. Maybe, the, you know, m- maybe uh, maybe they've come together around a particular persona, um, you know, the leader of that organization. Maybe it's around a particular belief system um, that they think is authoritative or certain or central. But um but it it's intoxicating in a sense. I mean, I've worked with a lot, I'm a therapist, right? And so I've worked with a lot of people who sort of come out of that. They're like, I can't believe that I believed those things and aspired to those things and and promoted and evangelized about those things. Um, but I I did it in part because I was sort of caught up in the, in a kind of collective grandiosity. So one of the things that really struck me, I had, I was listening to Dr. Langberg talk about this systemic narcissism thinking this applied to a certain area of my life. And then when I shared it with my husband, he's like, Hey, you know, this is just like X, Y, Z. And I was like, Mm. "Uh, no, (laughs) no, 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 it can't be. Mm. Um, Have you seen that there is a resistance in some people to like recognize that? How often do you see that happen? Uh, To to the more collective dynamics? Yeah. 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 I see it a lot, right? And part of the reason for that is is because um, there is this kind of um, psychological dynamic going on in people where that uh, that collective sense of belonging is important to them, right? It gives them a, a sense of connectedness, a sense of purpose. They're plugged in, so to speak, emotionally, psychologically. They're sort of plugged in. Like this is my this has become my surrogate family. This church has become um, my source of identity, my source of hope, right? And so when people reckon with that and as they're uh, sort of emerging from, uh, I've seen this in any anywhere from like cult um, context, right, to your kind of run-of-the-mill evangelical church where they're coming out of it and they're saying, well, who am I apart from mm-hmm. my uh, participation in that system or my... Uh, uh, adherence to this set of beliefs or my label as this particular version of evangelical Christian, right? And so it's really disorienting. You know, this is where people are in these conversations nowadays are about this kind of disorientation and deconstruction. Like, what do you do with that, right? When you've lost your sense of hope, purpose, family, meaning, belonging. I think it's given me a little bit of empathy for people that I want to just shake yeah. and say, can't you see it? You know, sometimes we're just not ready until we're, we're ready. So um, there's only so many things we can process at one time. I feel like that's such a compassionate perspective, Amy. And I feel like in in this whole conversation, we probably need more 
compassion for one another because of these dynamics. It's, it's not like anyone sort of wakes up in the morning saying, I want to be a part of this kind of collective narcissistic yeah. system, right? But yeah. but they're sort of unwittingly caught up in it. It doesn't mean they're not responsible, uh, but but they're sort of caught up in it, right? Yeah. yeah. So what would you say makes a pastor susceptible to narcissism? I don't know if there yeah. there's more narcissism in pastors or not. Yeah. You talk about in the book that there's some things that are set up in our church systems, especially in the evangelical churches in the United States. Yeah. That attract that narcissistic personality or somebody that has yeah. narcissistic traits. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think it's part and parcel. It's somewhat I didn't tease out in the book that I, I probably uh, could have and, and um, maybe should have is how, how this is caught up particularly within sort of Western culture and this sort of ethos of, of up into the right uh, uh, success driven sort of, victory-driven kind of um, mentality, right? That's part and parcel of, of Western culture, American culture. Um, the way we think about pastors and churches and the success of churches. Well, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do identify pastors in a particular kind of way and with a particular set of gifts and characteristics, and we expect them to be um, inspiring, good communicators, um, uh, secure, pr- present themselves well, confident, you know, all these kinds of things, right? And so when I, I've done assessments for, for a couple of decades now, right? And, um, you know, I if I did an assess- assessment of a mailman, let's say a plumber, you know, um, uh, a librarian um, and a church planner, I'm probably going to get, you know, get some different tendencies. And as I've done assessments, by and large, the vast majority of pastors are on the histrionic spectrum, the narcissistic spectrum, the turbulent spectrum. I use a, a test called the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory um, that puts people on a personality disorder spectrum. Some of them spike all the way up to disordered relating, right? Not all of them, but generally they're on one of those three spectrums, right? Or even obsessive, uh, obsessive compulsive spectrum. And so that's not a surprise to me anymore. You know, um, the question is, are you aware? Um, how does that show up in your um, relating, communicating, engaging, um, connecting with others? Uh, and and if there's low self-awareness, then that's, that's a problem, right? If there's a higher sense of self-awareness, like, yeah, I, I know I, I tend to be kind of interpersonally more dramatic and well, we, we, I can work with that, you know, as a, as a therapist, I can, um, you know, I can invite people to deeper maturity and self-awareness, but when there's low self-awareness, that's a problem. When you're doing these assessments and yeah. you see signs of uh, maybe more problematic narcissism, everybody has, you know, we're all yeah. on this spectrum of having some narcissism in us. Yeah. Um, who are you giving those results to and how are they generally received when you feel like there are some maybe yellow flags possibly yeah. flags waving. People are receiving them a lot better nowadays or organizations are receiving them better than they, they were 20 years ago, let's say. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this quick story, but I, I won't get into specifics. But a particular, let's say a particular organization reached out shortly after the book came out and um, they remembered me as a uh, a therapist and a pastor in my early 30s when I was involved in doing some assessing. And I was pretty new at this. I mean, I had gotten into 
this work really by and large because I was working with women who were sexually and emotionally abused and I was seeing these dynamics in the church. And so, but he called up and he said, I just read your book. Why didn't you say anything about this 20 years ago when you were part of our fill in the blank, right? And I said, well, I was, but none of you were listening. But then again, I didn't have as much gray in my beard and I was kind of a young, young guy. And um, yeah, I think that there's a there's a growing awareness, right? There's a willingness to say, okay, so we, we want to take this into account. Um, but there's also, I think you've probably seen this too, we're all seeing this kind of doubling down in certain sectors, right? Where, where it's like, um, they're just shutting down any conversation about this, shutting down any kind of self-awareness around their own um, accountability um, uh, for abuse or systemic dynamics or whatever the case may be, right? I don't, you probably saw this several months ago where there was a pretty high high profile pastor that had a, a clip of his sermon that was shared around and he was saying, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, spiritual abuse, but what about sheep bite? Yeah, I and saw that. Yeah. I was like, I just, I felt this pit in my stomach. It's like. Yeah. Just to note that we discussed the situation on a previous episode, and I'll make sure that that is linked in the show notes. I know that there are a good number of leaders that are godly, faithful, humble. Yeah. But when I hear that response, and I also see more than a small percentage of leaders that mm-hmm. are really feeling defensive. Yeah. And not very introspective. I just don't know how to handle that. I don't know. How, yeah. Like, how do you process that when you kind of seeing that play out yeah. you on social media? Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably yell into a pillow first or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, I'll probably delete a half a dozen tweets that I'd like to put out um, and do my own inner work first. But I mean, I think in particular, So I I don't want to miss the truth in that, right? I work with pastors who particularly in, you know, in in these last years of politics and COVID and stuff like that have have dealt with highly reactive people, political agendas and using their power. And I have no doubt that um, parishioners have power too, and they can use that power, particularly people with wealth. But that that was a person I know exactly what you're referring to with uh, a platform and an organization that had been responsible and continues to be responsible for a lot of pain mm-hmm. uh, and even cover up of, of abuse. And it yet yeah, that drives me crazy. And I think it's irresponsible. Yeah. yeah well, your church is involved in a lawsuit for a, a sexual assault that has happened on a child. It doesn't feel like the right time to talk about how yeah. you as a leader yeah. are under attack. And it is hard. It is hard to be introspective. It is yeah. hard. And yes, pastors are taking a lot. It has been a hard season yeah. for, for pastors. Yeah. If you were, if you were going to plant, plant a church, you're going <laughs> to suggest anything to some like yeah. people that are wanting to start maybe a new faith community or just talk to if a denomination reached out to you and said, how do we, what can we, is there one change that we can make that yeah. would make our, our communities healthier yeah. and look more like Jesus like, what would you yeah. suggest? Yeah, that's a really big question. It's a really good question. I feel like, Amy, that's probably the one of the questions we need to be wrestling with for the next decade. <laughs> what will these new communities look like? Um, what should be the character of these new communities? I, oftentimes when I have this conversation with people, I'll go back to moments even in church history where... Um, in the early church, there's a really wonderful book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church that 
where where there were these small communities that were um, living out self-giving love in the context of neighborly relationships, you know, and they weren't very big at all. But that that wasn't the goal. That wasn't the point. You know, it was about being community to one another and to uh, their neighborhoods. Right. I would say that my hero, my greatest 16th century, the greatest 16th century reformer is St. Teresa of Avila. Um, not John Calvin, not Martin Luther. She started an alternative community amidst the abuses within the Catholic Church, amidst sanctioned abuse within that day, a, a community centered on the Sermon on the Mount and, and following in the way of Jesus. Um, I always listen in when I'm talking to church planters to the kind of questions they're they're asking, the kind of statements they're making. If I hear things like, we need to take the gospel to such and such a city because they're in need of it, and it becomes about them and how they're going to go in and save the particular city or community, that's a big problem, right? If I hear them say, I think God's up to something there. I, I've talked to you know a dozen other uh, pastors about how I might participate and what they're already doing. Um, I've listened to people of color. I've listened to people who have different theologies than me, and I just want to come along. That feels different to me, you know? Um, and so you just open up your question is, is like, I hope we're chewing on that for the next decade. And I hope a, a lot of people um, that don't look necessarily like me are, are weighing in on that, by the way, um, right. as well. Yeah, that is such a, an important point. I was at the Restore Conference a couple week, weekends ago in, in Elgin, and um, I think it was Wade Mullen that had shared that um, it's just hard to hear people leading that had been, um, you know, responsible for abuse. And, you know, hearing some responses online from people of color, I thought, oh, my goodness, Mm-hmm. If there's ever a time to be listening mm-hmm. to people of color, yeah, uh, this this is the time, yeah, uh, because they have been experiencing spiritual abuse long before people that look like me, a white yeah. woman who is very privileged, yeah, realized it existed. <laughs> they yeah. have realized yeah. it has existed for a really, yeah, really long time. So, you know, they've been waving the flag, yeah. saying, "We we told you." People don't see things that don't impact them. Mm-hmm. And then when it does, it becomes like a big deal. And so it's really sad that it has to come to like feeling that hurt personally yeah. to see that it is very real in other communities as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd say for women too, right? I mean, I, I, I suspect you've experienced it. Um, I'm, I, my circles are more egalitarian. Um, so I don't want to make judgments of people who are, you know, not egalitarian or something. But by and large, Amy, my experience of, of this kind of stuff, this narcissism and abuse comes from circles where there is misogyny, patriarchy, um, usually complementarian theology. That It's just, it's no, um, it's not a shock to me when the calls that I get and the emails that I get are largely from circles that don't honor um, the dignity of women. And so um, that feels really important too, you know. Dr. McKnight said that one thing he was noticing was that really a lot of people leading a conversation, that there's a lot of women that are speaking up and he was really encouraged to see works by right. like Beth Allison Barr and right. really super smart, really thoughtful women. Christina yeah. Edmondson just wrote a book called Faithful yeah. Anti-Racism. Yeah. Uh, She's great. 
these people are brilliant and they're really leading leading the charge in, in many ways. And now for a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Do you have an idea for a great new podcast? You can bring your idea to life and start your podcast today with Libsyn. The Untangled Faith podcast has been on Libsyn for several months, and I love it. Libsyn has everything you need to plan, launch, and grow your own podcast. Libsyn provides some of the best resources created by expert podcasters who will show you everything you need to know, like what equipment you should use, how to record great audio, how to get your show onto Apple Podcasts and other popular platforms, and much more. Plus, as a friend of the Untangled Faith podcast, when you sign up with Libsyn, you get your first month of podcast hosting for free. There has never been a better time than right now for you to start podcasting. Visit Libsyn.com and use the code F-R-I-E-N-D. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com and use code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D, to get started and create your podcast today. Now, I want to remove move this conversation back to like this. We have a stereotypical idea of what narcissism looks like. and in your book you talk about there is there's there's a spectrum but there also are different ways that narcissism presents itself and you hinted at that earlier and i think the stereotype we have is the idea of the grandiose narcissist that's really large and that have a really large personality really strong you cannot miss them in a room but so what's the difference between that grandiose narcissist and the vulnerable narcissist yeah how can you actually be a vulnerable narcissist? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So um, just a little backstory there. Um, uh, back in the late 90s, when I got into this work, one of the books that was a go-to for me was Lundy Bancroft's Why Does He Do That? I've and, that. Um, now, Lundy, there have been some things that have come up around Lundy Bancroft lately that I've heard that I, I haven't been able to vet myself that have been concerning. But um I think that's just where we are nowadays, right? We, uh, uh, all of us are sort of accountable and have to be accountable, right? So, but there were, there was a way in which when I, uh, gave that book to women, um, there was a section in there where he talked about the different kinds of men that showed up as abusers. And I forget all the labels that he had, but like there was Mr. Right or Mr. Um, aggressive or whatever they were, you know, but like the sensitive guy, I think was one of them, you know? Um, and the sensitive guy looks like a vulnerable narcissist. Um, he doesn't need the stage. When we talk about grandiose narcissism, this is someone who needs a stage, needs titles. You know, the sensitive narcissist is um, more uh, what I call vulnerable, F-A-U-X, um, more, oh, I don't need the stage. I don't need honors. I just I just need your love and I demand your love, you know, and it's, there's this kind of demanding um, uh, power that you feel pulled to meet his needs. You know, he seems kind and nice and gentle and self-giving, but actually the pull is all toward him and you're there to buttress his, his uh, sense of self, um, his ego. Um, isn't it wonderful that I opened the door for you? Isn't it great that I've, you know, uh, paid for dinner, to, whatever it might be, right? a kind of smug superiority. Mm. Uh, these are pastors that find their way to small churches. Isn't it great that God has blessed us with such a small church because we value the truth so much? You know, they don't need the, the big stage, but they're no less powerful 
and you feel it in a kind of, um, if one comes from the front door, this one comes from the back door, but you're no less tugged. And I, I know for many of us who've experienced um, the sting of abuse, we know it in our bodies, you know, and I oftentimes when I'm work, when I work with victims, survivors, I'll ask them, tell me what your body is telling you, what your intuition is telling you. You'll say, yeah, I feel pulled in. I feel, I feel gross. I feel like he's, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, pulling me to meet his own needs, but it comes under the guise of him being such a good guy. I think it's so fascinating that a number of guests on this podcast have mentioned how our bodies often raise an alarm before our consciousness is aware there is a problem. That leads me to my question that I had for somebody that's in a faith community. Someone has told them, you know, I have had some problematic interactions with this pastor that, you know, they hear this from a friend, their friend has a problematic interaction with this pastor, but themselves, they have never had any yeah. inkling of anything bad. Yeah. You know, they may be like, you know, you talk about the Enneagram in your book a little bit. Like I would say an Enneagram nine may not be as, is, you know, in intuit these things, especially if you're dealing with a vulnerable narcissist, because they're just, this, they're the nice person. They're, they're, you know, they're not necessarily seeing it. So what would you say to somebody that, you know, somebody has said to them, I think there's a problem. And they're like, but this, I haven't seen anything. Like, what are some clues? Yeah. What are some things besides listening to your body? Like if they haven't yeah. had any bad experiences, but their friend has. Yeah. Well, I, I think, Usually when I inter interact with folks like that, I'll just invite them um, first and foremost to curiosity and a curiosity that believes their um, their fr friend, <laughs> you know, that uh, privileges first the perspective of their friend. You know, just believe I want you to default to believing her and um you may not be able to sense what she senses. You might not experience what she experiences. But I just want you to be open to um, to, to listening. Um, the tricky thing about this, Amy, is that um, they may not experience the same pull, the same power dynamics. Two people, and this is what's a little bit crazy making, two people in the same system, two, let's say two administrative assistants within the same church staff, one will say, well, he was a perfect gentleman and he was so kind to me and he'd send me flowers every year for my birthday. And he was, you know, and the other would say at every turn, he pulls on me for something more. It, or he demeans me with a look or a word. It's really hard to say, look for this or look for that because our own experience might be, be really different. But can you honor the dignity, the story and the experience of the person um, who has, um, who's gone through that. And then, and then, you know, when I do processes where, and I don't do as much of this anymore, but when I engage a church, right, or organization through a process, then what I'll, what I'll do is I'll say, we're going to start looking for patterns. I'm going to interview people. We're not just going to look for like one-off things, right? What we're going to be looking for are patterns. And so there may be occasional one-off behaviors, but I want to know how this has played out over the course of the last year, five years, 10 years, as long as he's been there. We're going to start to look for patterns. And so, but I do, I want to say out loud, it's really tricky. And I think people who are victims of this kind of abuse can be sort of gaslit um, and they may even gaslight themselves in, into thinking, well, I must, it must be something I'm missing because my dear friend here doesn't have the same experience. Yeah. I would say it's, it's very likely that a lot of churches aren't going to proactively be like, oh, look, some of these other denominations and other churches are like a dumpster fire. 
Yeah. We want to find ourselves there. What can we do to make sure we don't find ourselves in that same position? Unfortunately, what I do see often is, wow, it's too bad for them that they aren't as healthy as we are. (laughs) And and inside I'm thinking, oh, but you don't know. You do not know. Nobody thinks that they are the bad guy. And so if you, what would you encourage? How would you encourage church leaders? If you were on an elder board or somebody that had any power or position in a church, you don't know that there's anything necessarily wrong or unhealthy with Mm -hmm. your church. What would you encourage that those people that have that power and influence in a way to like what be proactive to make sure that they aren't missing something? Is this is this a situation where there's really no sign of a, abuse, but we just want to be proactive anyway? Or what are you thinking? Uh, well, I would say. Well, let's say some one person, you know, they think maybe, you know, there's no healthy, there's no perfect church. Of course, we've lost yeah. some people. Yeah. Some people have left. A few people have said a few things, but, yeah. you know, we haven't seen anything. You know, the elder board is yeah. really happy. People yeah. are just grumpy. It's a really yeah. hard season. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would you suggest in that situation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where, um, you know, organizations like Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in, in uh, Christian Environments and other organizations like that are really helpful. And some of the resources that we mentioned earlier, Diane's work, Wade's work. So there's a psychoeducational component that I think is important for for uh, elder boards today. I'll, tomorrow, I'll do um, a webinar for a large Christian organization on spiritual abuse. And it's really important that they um, learn about spiritual abuse and they hear some stories about what it looks like. Because until you um, read about it, learn about it, hear some stories, you might not see it. You might not even know that there's a, a power dynamic that might be in some way um, inti- intimidating or manipulating or coercive, right? And so I think education is a, a really important piece. Um, so nowadays, I think a part of it for, for a number of us has been resourcing organizations, denominations, elder boards. And when I, when I talk to some of these folks, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, it's, I'm surprised by the number of clergy I'm hearing from who said, I've never heard of this before. Like I've never known of the dynamics of power and spiritual abuse before. I've never heard spiritual abuse defined before. And, and then of course, as you know, once you hear it, once you, once you hear a story or two told, it's like, Oh, that's what that was, you know, 10 years ago or in the church that I was growing up in. And so there's one big piece is the psychoeducational piece, right? I think some of us that have experienced this and have spoken up about spiritual abuse, we find ourselves wondering if we are those people that walk into a church where the pastor's like, oh, no, (laughs) are these the people that see spiritual abuse behind everything and I do not yeah. want to be that person, but I yeah. do want to be a part of encouraging healthy cultures. So how would you encourage people in a situation like I'm in, or yeah. I am in a faith community, I want to help them. I would love to encourage every place to do a proactive like cultural yeah. analysis. What would you suggest to somebody that wants to like encourage their faith community to take those steps of yeah. like being proactive in that? Like, How can we sell that idea in a way that isn't? Yeah put people defensive. Yeah. Well, you know, part of it is working through some of those defenses, you know, I, I, and I've worked with pastors who sort of begin with defensiveness and resistance, and then they, and then they go on this journey and, 
And as they go on this journey, they're less afraid to ask the question that I, I mentioned this question in the book is a question I've been asking for the last 15 years. How do you experience me? To get to your question, it's it's not a binary. It's not like a either you have spiritual abuse happening or you don't, right? There's always power operating within systems. And and the reality is, is that let's just say now I'm not a pastor. I'm, I'm a professor and a therapist. Well, I have power in a variety of different relationships, right? And so when a student comes up to my office um, on the second level of the seminary building where we have doctor this and doctor that and doctor that, well, that's really intimidating. And let's say a woman walks up now into a male um, professor's office and I need to be aware, right, of, of my impact. And, and so part of this is, I, I, I say this to men mostly, because women tend to get it more than men. I'm inviting you to grow up. Um, I'm inviting you to mature. Part of the maturation process mm-hmm. is to relax some of your defenses. I, I know it's scary. Ministry is scary. Um, some sheep do bite. But I'm asking you actually to, to take the focus away from them and look at yourself and ask the question, how do I show up? And when pastors can find the courage to, to do that, um, it's it's pretty remarkable what they hear. That doesn't uh, make a system sort of foolproof against spiritual abuse, right? But it does cultivate a kind of health that leads to greater transparency and greater honesty uh, and accountability within systems. Okay, so here's a hard question for you. Yeah. Your book came out. So many people are buying it. They're taking pictures. You've got pastors doing selfies with their book, right? Yeah. And you have some parishioners that are like, has he even or she even read the book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There is a rise in what you say of false vulnerability, especially on social media, because people are talking a lot about these things. How do we discern between the false vulnerability and genuine vulnerability? That's a that's a really tricky one, right? Because you and I hear stories. I mean, I um, since I wrote this uh, book, I I get lots and lots of correspondence from people, um, mm-hmm. and they'll say, "Yeah, my pastor even said to read some of your stuff and read Scott McKnight's stuff and read Diane's," but um, that hasn't changed any of the dynamics within our church staff or our system, mm-hmm. right? So you know, this vulnerability that we're talking about is a, a false vulnerability. It's it's not it's not a When I think of vulnerability, I think of someone who uh, is really genuinely interested in knowing how he or she impacts others and really interested in confessing honestly, like um, that if Amy, you would to come to me and say, here's how I experienced you, Chuck, that I would really honor your experience of me and take it seriously and listen and and ask myself, so what do I need to um, confess? But when we talk about vulnerability, there's this kind of, um, uh, well, I'm just the chief of sinners and aren't we all narcissists? And it's kind of this general, opaque, um, unhelpful, yeah, the church is a mess, um, but we're all about the glory of Jesus. And I just want to be the most humble pastor. That That's hard. And I know you see it. I know I see it. In fact, I I, I also know that there have been people who uh, maybe I've encountered on a um podcast or I've been in an event with and I, I got a picture and someone will say to me, they'll get a I'll get a DM or something and they'll say, hey, so and so is my pastor. And I, I just want you to know everything that you wrote in your book, you know, I know he wants to get a picture with you, but that's him. 
And that's really hard, right? Yeah. Because there is a spectrum, there is a continuum, right? And so he might not be narcissistic personality disorder, but, you know, Dan Allender uh, years ago in his book, Bold Love, came up with a sort of helpful category. And he's got this whole sort of middle category of the fool. As someone who's sort of self-deceived, thinks he knows himself and thinks he's doing and saying all the right things, but really is, is um, you know, uh, is, is like a hurricane blowing and there's a debris field all around him. And he's not aware of it. Right. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of that. And I'm you, I'm guessing you hear some of these stories, too. Yeah. Right. You yeah. hear some of these conversations. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, even when I think, oh, I'm, I- you know, I'm, I'm going to suggest a book to somebody or, and you just don't know. And I think we have to just hold it humbly and just say, yeah, I'm doing the best I can with what I know right now. But if somebody says this person has been harmful and I have yeah. reason to believe that that is true, I just am careful, you know, yeah. I, I just more careful about it and knowing yeah. that there are some things that I'm going to know in five years that I don't know now. And hopefully yeah. I can own what I didn't know. And yeah. the whole process of actual true vulnerability, genuine vulnerability is scary. It, yeah. it really is. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear how they hurt somebody else. Yeah. And even if it was unintentional. So what I'm seeing in pastors that are really healthy is them saying, leaving a space and like having that openness to people saying that landed hard with me or that mm-hmm. was hard. And they can take that and say, I'm really sorry, even if it wasn't intentional. And yeah. in those that are introspective. I think you even said in the book, those people that are introspective, maybe you were quoting Diane Langberg, people that are like, am I the problem? You know, is it possible that I am unhealthy? And obviously all of us have unhealthy parts of us. Am I a narcissist? That's a good clue that we are on the road of wanting to, as long as it's not like a performative thing. So that's been the tricky part, I think, is the good number of pastors. I mean, I, I've had a lot of pastors reach out and, you know, um, I, I just want to make sure I'm not a narcissist. And I do think there there's a performative aspect to that at times, right? That I, I wonder, you probably had this experience too. I mean, so, sometimes it just, it doesn't get that bad on a church staff, right? It's, it's like, um, there's some, let's, is I don't know if there's a such thing as mild spiritual abuse, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's it's not it's not rocking people's worlds in the same way it might in another setting, and so so they sort of get away with it for years and years. And that is and, the uh, trickiest situation, I think, when you don't have tricky. like some really big smoking gun. Right, right, right. You know, there's no like sexual abuse. Right. There's no embezzlement happening, but it's real. But it's real. Yeah. 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 One of the stories that inspired writing this book was working with a larger church where um, it wasn't scandalous in a, in a massive way. It was it was as we did deep digging and as I interviewed 20 plus staff members, there was a really clear pattern that over the course of many years was established in various interactions of a, a certain way of showing up that was bullying and intimidating and minimizing and um and exploiting that you wouldn't have got in a kind of like one big event kind of way. Right. And so, mm-hmm. and that takes a lot of, a lot of work. I know Wade is doing that kind of work now. I used to do it a little bit more and it would, it, that's tough and it's tiring work and it takes a while. Um, and it's re-traumatizing to people who have to tell their stories and relive all of this again. Yeah. 
I had asked a few people on social media if they had any questions for you. So I'm going to give you a few of their oh, yeah. questions. Awesome. So I didn't even tell you what these questions were. Uh, that's okay. Um, one person said, in a complex situation, how do you differentiate between abusers and the victims in a church or faith community environment? Yeah, when maybe some of the victims are also doing some of the abusing too. Or, you know, like who is who is who is the problem here? Uh like what's really going on? That's a tricky one, right? And there is this kind of middle category where there are people who are sort of implicated in, in um, you know, and maybe uh, other staff who enable an abusive leader or pastor, right, who are themselves victims at one and the same time. And so I think, I, I think if people listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, I know there are mixed opinions about how that was done. And, but just listening to the, what you heard, the experiences of people, there are people who are talking who are clearly victims and enablers and abusers, right? And so, yeah, yeah normally it has to do with, you know, who has the power to hurt and harm and, and who is being harmed by the abuse or misuse of power. Power comes from having ability to give a lot of money to a church too. That's right. It doesn't necessarily mean like somebody is in a leadership position at a church. Like That's that's right. And, and that's where you, you do have, there are some legitimate cases where pastors are saying, yeah, it, 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 there, there are sheep that bite, you know. The one case that you and I were talking about, a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I asked Chuck to stick around and answer a few more questions for my patrons. If you are a part of our Patreon community, that should be waiting for you already. If you aren't a part of our Patreon membership community, we would love to have you join us. Go check it out at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. I would love to keep this conversation going. Come and find me on Instagram as untangledfaith or on Twitter as faithuntangled. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and your experience with narcissism. The Untangled Faith Podcast is created and hosted by me, Amy Fritz. It is underwritten in part by our family budget, as well as through supporters of the show on Patreon, including Michelle Pionic, who supports the show as a producer. If you appreciate this work, I would love for you to join as a supporter of the show. You can learn more about that at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. That's also where you can access all the bonus audio that is only shared with patrons. And don't forget to check out untangledfaithpodcast.com for all the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.